Well, as we continue our time of worship of the Lord Jesus tonight, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 23. And as we prepare our hearts for communion together, I want to look with you at one of the most memorable moments of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And I think probably the most uh, familiar image of the crucifixion is, is that of three crosses standing side by side on the top of a hill. And that's how the death of Christ is, is most commonly portrayed. Jesus hanging on the cross between two thieves. And while all four Gospels mention the fact that, that two thieves were crucified alongside Jesus, Luke is the only one who gave us a detailed account of what happened to those two thieves. Read with me, if you will, Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. When they led Christ away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him, But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And then notice verse 32, two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And then our text for tonight, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And as he was and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. To me, verses thirty nine through forty three are the highlight of the crucifixion account. The salvation of this penitent thief shines forth in the midst of all the pain and the agony and the darkness and the sadness surrounding the death of Jesus. We know the Old Testament prophet Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. But who would have ever considered that one of those transgressors would get saved in the process? J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness 
declared that this thief is the greatest trophy which Christ ever won. And in the providence of God, these two criminals were giving, given front row seats to the crucifixion, not something you would want to necessarily uh, uh, sign up for, but no one had a better view of what Jesus went through on the cross than these two guys. Both of them witnessed him struggle on the way to Calvary uh, to the point that someone else was forced to, to carry his cross. Both of them heard the mourning and the wailing of the women who followed along after him. And both of them heard him tell them to weep for themselves because of, of the judgment that was about to come upon Jerusalem for killing their Messiah. They both saw the soldiers drive nails into his hands and feet and then mercilessly hoist him up beside, him, beside them on a cross. Both of them heard him cry out to God to forgive the people for what they were doing to him. Both of them watched the soldiers gamble for his robe. Both of them heard the religious leaders taunting him to save himself if he really was the Messiah. Both of them heard the, the Roman soldiers mocking him that if he was, was king, then why didn't he prove it? They both could read the inscription above his head that read, This is the king of the Jews. And unlike any others, they both could see the drops of bloody sweat dripping down his body and they could hear his every moan and groan and see every grimace in his face. And yet even though they both witnessed the same profound event side by side, they both responded in two profoundly different ways which resulted in them spending eternity in two profoundly different places. And the responses of these two thieves, I think, are representative of the two possible responses that, that we can have to the death of Christ. There, there's only two ways you can respond tonight to the death of Christ. First of all, you could respond in hostile rejection and unbelief. Or secondly, you could choose to respond in humble repentance and belief. Let's look at these two responses as representative, represented by these two thieves. First of all, uh, the response, the first possible response is hostile rejection and unbelief. Look again at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So the crowd surrounding the foot of the cross kept yelling at Jesus to prove that he was who he said he was by rescuing himself. And if that wasn't enough to deal with, all of a sudden he heard the voice of one of the criminals hanging right next to him, yelling the same thing. And apparently this criminal got caught up in the, in the frenzy of the moment, kind of the feeding frenzy, if you will, and sarcastically taunted Jesus just to save all of them. Hey, perform a miracle and, and get us all out of this mess. And so to be sure, this guy wanted out. He wanted off that cross. He wanted to be saved. He wanted to be rescued. But his problem was he wanted to get rescued his way. He obviously had no thought of God, no guilt for his sin, no desire to repent and change, and no sense of any need of forgiveness. Neither did anyone in the angry mob below either. And so consequently, they all, they all rejected him. Why? Because he wouldn't come down off the cross. 
And ironically, what they failed to realize is that if he saved himself, then he couldn't save them. And contrary to what they believed, it wasn't weakness that kept Jesus on the cross. It was his powerful love for them. And so even after all the evil religious leaders and and wicked soldiers uh, had had done ruthless things to him, he still had tremendous love and compassion for them. He, He did what he had taught his disciples to do, to pray for your enemies. He modeled what he taught. He practiced what he preached. And he prayed that God would forgive them for what they had done because they didn't know what they had done. They didn't know what they were doing. They were acting in total ignorance. I mean, God could and should have killed all of them instantly for killing his son, but he chose to be merciful instead. I think the same is true for any of you here tonight that have yet to trust Christ, that you are living in rejection of Christ, living in rebellion against God. I think it's safe to say that that Christ is praying for you even now in your ignorance because you don't know what you're doing. He knows you don't have a clue. And he could kill you instantly for your rebellion against him if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to do that. He wants to forgive you tonight. That's what he wants. You say, well, how could he possibly forgive me? I mean, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what kind of sin I've committed. I I don't know how Jesus could possibly forgive me. Well, that's why we love this other thief. (laughs) Because both Matthew and Mark recorded that at, at first, at first, both criminals were mocking Christ along with the crowds. But as the hours wore on, God began to convict the conscience of one of those criminals, and he repented, and he placed his faith in Christ. And here we have the second response, possible response, to the death of Christ, and that's humble repentance and faith. Notice verse 40. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And so here this other thief rebukes what was likely his friend. They were probably partners in crime. And his rebuke reveals the fact that an amazing transformation had taken place in his heart. And while he hung there dying next to Jesus, God through the Holy Spirit uh, initiated the work of regeneration in that man's soul. And he was overwhelmed with his sense of of his own sinfulness in, in comparison to this righteous man hanging next to him. Now we don't know anything about this guy's past, We don't know how much or how often he stole or from whom or why he stole. All we know that he was a wicked thief who deserved to die for his crimes. We don't know if this was the first and only time he had been with Jesus, but apparently what he saw and what he heard that day was enough to make him want to turn from his life of sin and embrace Jesus as his Lord and Master. 
And I think his decision here to stop mocking Christ and begin worshiping Christ and honoring Christ demonstrated remarkable faith in light of the circumstances. I mean, just think about this. Jesus' own disciples had scattered and even denied him. The Jewish religious leaders had rejected him as a blasphemous fraud. The, the, the Roman soldiers thought Jesus was just a big joke. They were having a lot of fun with him, and not to mention the fact that Jesus was hanging next to him, nailed to a cross. That's not the kind of guy that you would think, hey, I'm going to put my faith in this guy. Well, he's in the same predicament as I am. And yet, despite all this, this thief boldly professed faith in this bleeding, suffering man as his Lord and Savior. And he trusted him as a, as a dying king. Why? Because he realized he was no ordinary king. He, he was a different kind of king, a, a, a king who was not of this world. He was a, a forgiving uh, king who had the power to, to bring even the most unworthy subjects into his kingdom. And so when you consider all that, that he had to overcome in his mind, in his heart, his faith was, was truly astounding. It's amazing. Something that only God could have accomplished in his, in his heart. A couple great men of the past, G. Campbell Morgan says this, quote, it seems to me the story of the faith of the dying criminal is the most remarkable in all the ministry of Jesus Christ. He said, I do not know of any manifestation of faith quite so wonderful. John Calvin said this, I know not that since the creation of the world, there ever was a more remarkable and striking example of faith than this man, this thief on the cross. And I think the the, the genuineness of, of this man's repentance and faith is evidenced by several Crucial ways. Just notice back at verses 40 to 42. First of all, he feared God. He feared God. He, he recognized God as his, as his creator, as his sustainer, and his judge who, who he had ignored all these years and had not honored him and not given him thanks. Secondly, he knew that he deserved to die for what he had done. He, he admitted his sin and acknowledged that he deserved to be punished for it. Thirdly, he he knew that Jesus didn't deserve to die because he was innocent. He understood that Jesus wasn't just a martyr, but that he was a sinless sacrifice who submitted himself to the brutality of the cross without any resistance, without any retaliation. Fourthly, he believed that Jesus is who he said he is, that he was the Messiah, God's son sent to save his people. Number five, he believed that the Messiah was about to enter his glory, that he was the King of kings, he was the Lord of lords. And then finally, he he wanted to experience Christ's grace and mercy. He realized that Jesus was the only hope that he had, and so he cried out to him for mercy. I mean, what a powerful example of repentance and faith. I mean, this is what it means to be a Christian, to, to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. And I think these are, are, are the, the kinds of things that will mark the life of, of, of any person who's truly saved. 
And that's why I think it's so interesting, so ironic, that, that some like to use the thief on the cross to prove that all you need to do to be saved is, is just believe. Just believe. Even if there's no fruit in your life that you're saved. They say, well, look at the thief on the cross. All he did was believe. All he did was place his faith in Christ. He didn't have time to demonstrate all this fruit of a changed life that you require of, of believers. My response is, well, what do you call all that stuff? <laughs> to me, that's, I mean, this guy's fruit was falling off the tree. I don't, I don't know of any clearer example of the fact that, that true salvation always results in a transformed life. J.C. Ryle, again, in commenting on this story, he says, short as his life was after conversion, I mean, what, a few days, a few hours, a few minutes, right? Short as his life was after conversion, this man found time to leave abundant evidence that he was a child of God. His faith, his prayer, his humility, his brotherly love are unmistakable witnesses of the reality of his repentance. Let no man therefore say that because the penitent thief was saved that men can be saved without leaving any evidence of the Spirit's work. In other words, there will always be some evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life if you're truly saved. I don't care how long you were saved, whether you were saved for a minute or you're saved for 45 years. Now, on the other side of the coin, let me be quick to point out that this man never got baptized. He never joined a church. He never took communion. He never served the cause of Christ or financially supported the cause of Christ. He never did any of the other things, right, that we sometimes equate with salvation, being a Christian. And again, I think this is undeniable proof that salvation is not by works, it's by grace through faith alone. This thief didn't deserve to be saved, and there was nothing he could do to earn his salvation. And so he cries out to Jesus and says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And notice Jesus' response, verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so Jesus immediately assured him that he would graciously reward his repentant faith by bringing him to heaven with him when he died. That, that phrase paradise, there that word paradise, is used only two other places in Scripture and, and both refer to heaven. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 how he was taken up to the third heaven, to paradise. Um, the church in Ephesus, Jesus referred to, uh, to, to heaven there as paradise. The word was a, was, a, was a Persian reference that was used to describe a park or a, some kind of an enclosed garden. And when a Persian king would, would want to give one of his um, subjects a, a special honor, he would allow him to, to walk with him in his garden. That was a big deal in those days. And so here Jesus is promising this thief that he would, would have the special honor of not just walking in a garden, but living eternally with him in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard to imagine what heaven will be like. We, we, we all know that popular song, I Can Only Imagine, right? But whatever we can imagine, 
we need to remember that whatever we're looking forward to about heaven, it will pale in comparison to the fact that Jesus will be there. Yeah, you might see your Aunt Mabel and your son or daughter or your mom and dad or a lot of other neat things, but ultimately, right, Jesus is there. Notice he says, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me. You will be with me in paradise. You will have personal communion with Christ. Again, simply being with Jesus is going to be the best part of heaven. I read a story about a mother who was trying to comfort her sick and dying daughter by describing what heaven would be like. And she said, honey, they're, they're, you're going to have no pains and there'll be no sickness and, and you're going to see your brothers and your sisters who have gone before you and you'll always be happy. And the girl replied, and oh, mother, but there's one thing better than all this and that's that Christ will be there. That's what matters most. But notice it says here, he said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Which is evidence that when a believer dies, their soul is instantly in the presence of Christ in heaven. Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord or home with the Lord. In Philippians 1.23, he was wrestling back and forth whether or not he should stay here and serve the Lord or go and be with the Lord in heaven. He said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. If it was a matter of, of, of staying here and serving the Lord and departing and going to purgatory or departing and you know, letting your soul sleep for thousands thousands, I think he would have chose, right? I'm sticking here. Much better option, but that's not the case. There's no such thing as, as purgatory or soul sleep. The, the implication here is that the second this thief breathed his last breath, he went, his, soul, his soul went straight to heaven. And the other thief went straight to hell. I mean, talk about the ultimate deathbed conversion. Have you heard of the deathbed conversion, right? Somebody's lying on their deathbed and they, they make a final appeal. They cry out to God for mercy and seek his forgiveness. And they come to Christ in the, in the final moments of their life. And so in this final moment of this thief's life, a lifetime of sin was forgiven. And he was given the reward of eternal life in heaven. He was that laborer in the parable in Matthew chapter 20 who got who got hired in the 11th hour, right? The last hour, they only had to work one hour, but he got paid the same as the guy that was working all day. And may you be encouraged by this thought that it's never too late to repent. I mean, it's never too late to get right with God. As long as your heart is beating, the invitation to turn from your life of sin and to place your faith in Christ still stands. By the way, that would be right now because your heart's still beating, right? You're, you're here, you're sitting here alive. And the only way to remove that hope of salvation is if you respond in hostile rejection and unbelief like the other thief. But if you respond to Christ's death like this thief in genuine repentance and faith, demonstrating your fear of God by admitting the fact that you've sinned against him, 
and that you deserve to die and go to hell, but that Jesus Christ is the innocent, righteous Son of God who died in the place of sinners like you to rescue you from death, then Jesus will respond to you the same way he responded to this thief, by saving you and granting you eternal life in heaven. I think these three crosses on the hill of Calvary really are a microcosm of everyone in this world. This is not just a story about two thieves who died next to Jesus 2,000 years ago. This is a story about you. This is a story about me. This is a story about all of us because all of us are criminals condemned to die. And Christ died on the middle cross in the place of all those who would repent and believe. And it's like we're all hanging on either side of Jesus tonight. We're all going to die. and There's nothing we can do about it. The question is, where will you spend eternity? In heaven or in hell? And it all depends on how you respond to the man hanging in the middle. You can either reject him and die in your sin and pay the penalty for your sin in hell or you can receive him as your Lord and Savior and have your sin forgiven and spend eternity with him in heaven. Three crosses, two criminals, one choice. One choice. What will it be? What will you choose tonight? Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this iconic image that is really burned into our minds. We don't even need a picture uh, to remind us of, of the three crosses on the hill. But Lord, I pray that we would all, as we contemplate the cross tonight, realize that we were those two thieves. And Lord, some of us, by your grace, have repented and trusted you as our Lord and Savior. We know that you initiated that work of regeneration, and we give you all the glory and the honor for opening up our eyes, because if it weren't for your grace, we would be that mocking thief even today. And so, Lord, we're here to worship you and to praise you and to thank you tonight for your amazing grace and for dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sin so that we could be forgiven and we could live forever with you in paradise. And Lord, I want to just pray for those who are here tonight. Maybe they come every, every week to this church or maybe they're just visiting for the first time this evening and they've really never grappled with the cross, really never saw themselves as that thief condemned to die. And I pray you'd open up their eyes tonight, that you would initiate that regenerating work in their hearts, in their soul, or that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior tonight. We thank you for being such an awesome Savior, an awesome Lord, so worthy to be worshiped and praised. We bow before you tonight in humble adoration. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.